family and your, your presence here today is thankful for a warm sanctuary. And some of you may say, it's too warm, I don't know. Feels good to me. Um, I will be Minister of Announcements briefly. Our Pregnancy Resource Center Baby Bottle Boomerang, an annual fundraiser for that great ministry in Carrollton. Bottles are available on your left and right as you leave and also on the information table. Our goal is to have them back in a couple of weeks filled with money for the PRC to help save babies' lives and be a great ministry to, uh, to our community for the sanctity of life. So if you have any questions, let me know, but bottles will be available. We hope to give all of them out and fill those up. Calendars for February are available also, so we're grateful to have those printed again. On February's calendar, you will notice on the 11th Friday night is Galentine's. 5 to 9.30, please see Sarah Beth Bledsoe if you have any questions, but that's a girls' night to watch a movie, celebrate Valentine's Day. So um, please make notice of that. Other things that are on there, um, well, I'll let you, let you figure those out. There is a shower for Giles and Stephanie on the 27th, which is the last Sunday of the month. I do want to highlight that. And also, oh, the other thing, there is a basket for Robin Stewart. Uh, she's getting married soon. If we want to love her and uh, her husband-to-be, please fill that with gifts, gift cards, so forth, and I will be sure to get that to Robin soon. So that's another wedding that's upcoming. That's all I've got for now. Let's stand. Kim Harper is going to share with us a word of encouragement about divorce care ministry. So, Kim, if you'll come on up and make your way, please listen attentively to Miss Kim. She's also our local grief share coordinator, I guess you might could say, if you're ever are interested and in, in need that ministry. And I think all of us should be interested, and all of us at some point will need that ministry. Uh, how long are you going to talk? Okay. Be seated because I just looked at her notes. You want to have a seat? <laughs> it's not that long. Um, <laughs> I just wanted to share with you guys um, about um, what we're offering divorce care um, and just explain why we feel like it's important. Grief is a natural response to loss. Divorce is a loss of the current family structure, a loss of identity. Even if you feel relief, um, to be out of the relationship, it can leave you with feelings of shame, fear, anger, guilt, depression, rejection, and a failure. Divorce does not happen to young couples only. Um, it also happens as a result of midlife crisis, along with a wide variety of other reasons. Divorce is taboo in the church. Um, it's not talked about, um, but affects most everybody um, at some point or another whether you're divorced yourself, have parents who are divorced, or a child of divorce, um, or a family member. It affects most everyone. I, if I venture to say if you raised your hand, most everybody would, would probably raise their hand in the church, um, which is so sad. Um, so um, we just offer comfort. Um, while many um, or most people uh, remarry for a second chance of happiness, according to the census data, the divorce rate for a second marriage is 60% in the U.S., and it just goes on from there. 
Our reasons for bringing divorce care to the church is, not, is to help people heal before they take the feelings from the grief of their divorce into another relationship, to help them heal and become whole. Um, redeemed is the word that I like to use. Um, so if you know anyone in the church or in the community or you yourself um, would benefit from divorce care, please um, know that you're all invited. Um, there's a sign-up sheet in the back. Uh, we'll start the class next Sunday morning during Sunday school. One more thing is we offer um, one more resource called Before You Divorce. Um, if you're having trouble in your marriage um, currently um, and have talked about divorce, we offer a, a short program to help you uh, work through that if possible. Um, so for today's reading is 2 Corinthians 1, 3, through 4, 3 and 4. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles, so that we can com so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from the God. So we'll just pray now. Is that what you want me to do? <laughs> Lord, we just come to you right now. Just um, Lord, I just uh, I pray that our church can become a church um, like our, our motto is a church where love abounds. A church that comforts people and welcomes the brokenhearted, Lord, um, and that we know that it's a safe place, Lord, not a place of shame, but a place of a refuge and, shame and um, redemption. Lord, I just um, ask for the service today to um, our hearts be opened as we hear the word, um, as we fellowship. Amen. Good morning. If you will stand this morning, we're going to begin our worship, and we're going to sing, as I was saying, it was like an old, somebody just, I asked them if they knew it, and they were like, yeah, the old school worship, and I was like, yeah, the old school worship, but not so old school that you don't know it, but old school enough that I was surprised it's in the hymnal. So anyways, if you know the hand motions, you're welcome to do those too, but we're going to begin worship with Lord, I lift your name on high. You may be seated. 
if you'll stand with us and sing Change My Heart, Oh God. Gracious Heavenly Father, God, Lord, thank you so much for a wonderful first month of the year, God. And Lord, as we start February, Lord, may we um, just truly take time to focus in on our heart, God. Lord, may we um, focus in on, on what you remind us in Matthew, that we are to seek you first in your kingdom, God. And if we're truly waking up every morning and seeking you first above all else, God, Lord, there's something in each one of our hearts that you're going to have to change, Lord. So may we be um, open to that. May we be obedient in the things in our life you show us we need to change, God. And Lord, may we um, just be diligent to remove the things in our life that hinder us from loving others as you've commanded us to love, God. Lord, the things that um, keep us from showing Christ-like love to every individual, God, and the things that um, put a shadow upon your love being reflected in everything we do in our lives, God. Lord, you are the ultimate healer. And Lord, as we talked about in choir last week, the more we sing that song, God, over the past year, it just means a little bit more. Because, God, you were able to heal um, even the most broken heart, God, and bring it back to you, Lord. So, God, I just pray that you, um, you pull out your needle and thread this morning. And those that need to be stitched back together, us that need to be stitched back together, Lord, that, that you sew us back. Um, into your will, and into your love, and into your embrace, God. Lord, I just turn this service over to you, that you will have your way in each one of our lives, God. Open our ears to hear your word clearly. Open our eyes to see new things in the book of Luke, God. And just open our minds, Lord, to be receptive of what it is that you're having us learn today. 
We just love you and praise you and thank you so much. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You may be seated and children are dismissed with Miss Vaughn in the back for Children's Church. Hey, as the children leave, I forgot one announcement. <clears throat> there will be a children's choir pizza party today at 6 in the children's building. Easter will be approaching quickly, so the children are going to start today working on Easter music. If you're interested at all, uh, have your child show up at 6 today for pizza and the beginning of that. If you have any questions, you can let me know, Catherine know, um, or anyone else on staff. So we've got information on that. Youth will also meet today at 6 and also the adults. And Sandy Teeter had a birthday this week. Isn't that correct? Okay. Anybody else that had one? Happy birthday to you also. Angela. Angela turned 30 <laughs> earlier this week. I did hear that, Richard. Thank you. All right, Luke chapter 14. Um, if you've been with us recently, you know that we've spent, I guess, the last year maybe working through the gospel of Luke. And today we turn to a new chapter, chapter 14. Jesus continues to move toward Jerusalem in his teaching, in his ministering. In spite of the opposition, he has commanded us to enter, strive to enter the narrow way. So this morning in Luke 14, my take on this is that he begins to talk in Luke 14 about what it means to walk the narrow way, what it means to go the way of Christ. So let's watch Jesus and let's see how he lives, how he moves, how he ministers. Because what he is, God is molding and shaping us to be. And you will know in your own life whether or not you are walking the narrow way his way by the fruit and the evidence in your life that reflects him. In other words, if you're like me and you're driving, I like to know, based on certain landmarks, if I'm on the right road. And so, you know, old school, you go to, you know, that particular light, then you turn at that particular store, and now you got Siri telling you all these, you know, turns. Hey, go back older than that. In Heard County, there's a road called the Five Notch Road. And you can see Five Notch Notch Road, uh, evidence further up the river of other Notch Roads. Before Siri, they put notches in the tree. So let's look at today's text, and here's where I want to go with this. This, this is going to be the Six Notch Road. <laughs> and if you're on the road of Christ, if you have surrendered, repented, and you're striving, you're putting forth effort towards the things of God and the kingdom of God, what we see this morning in Luke 14, these things will show up in your life because they are of Christ. They are Him and they are His way. And the narrow way is the way of Christ. It is following Jesus. So we don't get to form or shape the way according to our desires and wills, but His desire and will. So let's go ahead to the text. Uh, Luke chapter 14. I'm going to read verses 1 through 14. <clears throat> so it came about that when Jesus, 
the he here, when he went into the house of one of the leaders of the Pharisees on the Sabbath, timing there is crucial, on the Sabbath, to eat bread, that they were watching him closely, scrutinizing him, hoping and waiting on his next mistake in their book. And this was a constant attitude of the opponents of Christ in his ministry. So they're watching him closely, verse 2, and there in front of him was a certain man suffering from dropsy. And that's not a word that I don't know that I've ever used. So I had to look it up. What is dropsy? Apparently, if a person had dropsy, there were certain parts of their body that would retain fluid and start to swell, and it was very painful. Suffering, hurting, discomfort. It would be a barrier to living a, you know, a full, enjoyable life. The modern equivalent, I think, is called edema, if I'm saying that correctly. So anyway, as we move through and we come to dropsy, you're thinking, what in the world is dropsy? Okay, that was the best that I could do with dropsy. So verse 3, Well, Jesus answered and spoke to the lawyers and the Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Loaded question. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they kept silent. And look at what Jesus did with the man who had dropsy. He took hold of him. He healed him and he sent him away. This man was right there in front of Jesus. And Jesus took hold of him, healed him, and sent him away. And then then Jesus said to the lawyers and the Pharisees, Which one of you shall have a son or an ox fall into a well? A son or or an ox fall into a well and will not immediately pull him out on a Sabbath day they could not make excuse me they could make no reply to this no reply their lips are sealed so he began speaking a parable to the invited guests remember we're at this dinner we're at this reception and there are guests it's not just the man with dropsy there are other people there so he began speaking a parable to the invited guests when he noticed Look, he noticed how they had been picking out the places of honor at the table. He's paying attention. God's always paying attention. And so he starts saying to them, When you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not, do not take the place of honor lest someone more distinguished than you may have been invited by him. And he who invited you both shall come and say to you, Give place to this man in disgrace. You proceed to occupy the last place. How embarrassing. Have you ever had the feeling, or the? I've had this, not a feeling, well, I guess it leads to a feeling, but... You see someone wave at you, and you start waving back. (laughs) And then your heart drops because you realize they were not waving at you. They're waving at the person behind you. (laughs) You're like, oh, man, I I thought they were waving at me. 
Jesus says, how embarrassing would it be for you to assert yourself in a place of prominence, yet there's someone more prominent than you that takes your place. Hey, as I read through this, there's no one more prominent than Christ. And maybe there's a bit of reflecting here on how they have treated him relative to how they're treating one another. I don't know. Maybe that's just me. But there's no one who could walk into the room that would be more distinguished than Christ. So may we all know our place in relationship to him and one another. But, back to verse 10. When you are invited... And we all like to be invited. When you're invited, you go and you recline at the last place. You take the lowest spot in the room. So that when the one who has invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will have honor in the sight of all who are at the table with you. For everyone, here is a universal principle. Everyone who exalts himself shall be humbled, and he who humbles himself shall be exalted. Now, word studies here will show you this is a divine passive. In other words, God will do the humbling and God will do the exalting. It's not up to us to determine who goes where. It is God alone who does exalting and humbling. So Jesus shifted there. He shifted the the, the thought process there from what takes place on a human level to how God sees and how God measures. And we often need help turning our hearts and minds from from humanistic thinking to God-centered thinking. And Jesus does that for us. So in verse 12, he goes on to say... Man, Jesus has something for everybody. He instructed those who were invited, the guests, and now he goes after the host. And so he says in verse 12, he also went on to say to the one who had invited him, when you give a luncheon or when you give a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors. lest they also invite you in return and repayment come to you. And this is very convicting. But when you give a reception, you invite the poor. You invite the crippled. You invite the lame. You invite the blind. And you will be blessed since they do not have the means To repay you, for you will be repaid. You will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Father, thank you for our word. Thank you for clarifying to us what is of ultimate importance to you. And in your kingdom, how your kingdom operates so differently from ours. Our thinking, our, our ways of behavior... Father, when I read through this, I recognize that I need forgiveness. And I do need a changed heart. 
to be more in line with who you are and what you demand of us. Thank you for forgiveness in Christ. Thank you for transformation in Christ. And may your words, may your words from Luke 14 be part of the process of molding and shaping us to look more like Christ, to be more like Christ, and to give us certainty and assurance that we truly are entering into and striving to enter into the narrow way that is the way of Jesus and the way of eternal salvation. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, as always, there is a lot here, and I'm going to try to sort through this to a, a degree to, um, hey, I promised a six-notch road, all right? So I'm going to get to that. Number one, I want us to see in this passage that we have before us the perseverance of Jesus, the perseverance of Christ. So if you're on the narrow way, if you're on the way of Christ, perseverance will also mark your life. Spiritual endurance, spiritual toughness. Paul puts it like this, forgetting what's behind, I press on toward what is ahead, being willing to suffer for the sake of Christ, in order to be resurrected into glory with Christ. Spiritual perseverance by Jesus. Now, they were watching him closely. They were always watching him closely. My point is that Jesus in his life and ministry continued to press on through the teeth of the defense, through his opponents, toward his ultimate mission of giving himself for us at Calvary. Nothing was going to deter him from his mission, his hour. We saw last week that there was this divine must, I must go to Jerusalem. And they were threatening him, they were saying, well Herod wants to kill you. Jesus already knew that. It's clear that he knows that in Jerusalem he will die. So it's not as if he says, well, oh, wait, Herod's trying to kill me? Well, then forget it all. I'm done. I'm out of here. No, that's why the Sabbath is brought up in this context. This is the third time that he's healed on the Sabbath. The first time he healed on the Sabbath, it was so offensive to his opponents. That they, that the Bible says they became enraged and they began to plan out how they were going to destroy him. My point is that as we read through this story and as we read through this text, I want you to see that nothing, not hell itself, was going to deter Jesus from his mission. I see his perseverance pressing through their, their watching eyes their judgmental eyes, their cold, cruel hearts in relationship to him and the ministry that he has. His opponents were ever-present, but he continues to press forward. He must go on. And the reason I point that out to you and to me is that we too must go on. It is the upward call of God in Christ Jesus and, and though none go with me, I still will follow. I cannot allow myself to have any wiggle room on this narrow way, which is the way of Christ. I must draw my strength and my endurance from Jesus 
and his perseverance right there in the midst of his opponents and his enemies, whether it be Herod, the Pharisees, the scribes, the religious leaders, whoever it is, he presses on out of glory to the Father, out of commitment to his mission and love for you and me. Now, because we're human, we need to allow ourselves to think through this and to allow ourselves opportunity and clarity on continuing the race. For a couple of thoughts that I have. Uh, Kirby Smart, University of Georgia. Ever heard of that guy? Yeah, I'm still thinking about it. (laughs) I still got it on my mind. Man, after Georgia finally won it all, he used a phrase to picture what it means to continue to work and continue to strive and continue to press on. And, and I had a, a friend who could, they, they said, what does Kirby mean by burning the boats? And I thought, I don't know. <laughs> I know what I think he means. So you look it up, and it's a reference to Cortez, the great explorer, who as they were striving to get to Mexico, he told his men, along the next stage, we're burning the boats. That means we're not going back. We're not even going to allow ourselves the temptation to go back. We're going to cross this bridge, and we're burning the boats. There is no turning back. We are persevering. I thought about the man I heard of who, and he was on a journey and he knew he couldn't go back. And he knew he was weak. He knew he was tempted at times to go back. So it was in the dead of winter, and there were some difficult streams to cross. And when he came to a difficult stream, he would take off his coat, and he would sling his coat across the stream, (laughs) forcing himself to either jump Run, work, whatever he had to do. He was giving himself no leeway room, no wiggle room from continuing to persevere. And so he would throw his jacket across the stream, forcing himself to continue. That's the kind of picture I want us to have when we think about the narrow way. We will not and we cannot and we must not go back. I have decided to follow Jesus, we learned as children. What? No turning back. Why did adults instill that into us? Because they knew and they know the temptation to turn to the left or the right, to give up. But it is the strength and the grace of Christ. It's His perseverance which saves us. So Jesus continues to press on so that you and I can be saved and forgiven for our laxity and our lack of perseverance so that through that forgiveness and grace we can continue to be restored, put back on the path and his perseverance empowers our perseverance. I've got to move on. Is there perseverance in you? If there is, that's a sign, that's a mark. That's a notch that you're on the narrow way. Though a righteous man falls seven times, the Bible says he gets up every time. I've got to move on. I've got to persevere in this for all of our sake. Okay, number two, 
the priorities of Christ. We have in this text that Jesus always prioritizes people, human beings, the sanctity of life, if you will, over rules, rituals, and regulations. Now, where do you get this? Right there in front of him is a person, a human being who's hurting. These Sabbath rituals, they were added additions by religious leaders to keep people under their thumbs. Jesus knows this. That's why this is strike three for Jesus. What I mean by that? I mean, this is the third Sabbath healing in Luke. It is the last Sabbath healing in Luke. It is strike three for Jesus. He's going to be out in more ways than one. But he's willing to be intentional about violating these rules and regulations, knowing that it's going to lead to his death, because his priority is people and redemption and healing and salvation over everything else. Who is this man with dropsy? And why is he right in front of Jesus? Commentators debate, is this a trap? Was he planted there by the religious officials to trap Jesus into healing on the Sabbath so that they could have more material in order to crucify him? Is he an intruder? Is he a genuine guest? We don't know the answer to that, but what we do know is he's a human being with a need. And human beings with needs need to be right in front of Jesus. The other point I want to make is that you and I are the human beings who are in great need who also need to be right in front of Jesus. If the most important thing in the world is to know that Jesus Christ can save you, the second most important thing in the world is to know that you require it. So as we read through this passage and we see this needy person who's right there in front of Jesus, you and I should make the step on the narrow way of recognizing our great need for Jesus and we should thank God for the priority that he put over loving God with all heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving neighbor as self because his goal, his mission, his priority, and his passion was the salvation of sinful human beings. People just like you and me. So I want to sum up point number two. The priority of Christ is his compassion, his mercy. And over and over in his ministry and over and over in his actions, in his, in his life, he illustrates the priority that he put over touching and healing and saving people. I'll, I'll, I'll say it better from borrowing from G. Camel Morgan. Jesus was constantly trampling underfoot the conventions of men and violating the false sanctions they had built around the Sabbath in its varied forms of ritual. In other words, he put people over what they had added to the law. And he's doing this because his priority is compassion. He said over and over, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And James tells us that mercy triumphs over judgment. What's the priority of Christ? Compassion. 
What's the priority of Christ? Mercy. God has his major in every degree there is, but he has his Ph.D. in compassion, in mercy. Hey, I follow a lot of accounts on Instagram, and I noticed last week the Harvard Business Review. Now, don't ask me why I follow the Harvard Business Review. It makes me feel a little bit smarter. But y'all, I noticed last week on one of their posts was a graphic. And this is the title of the graphic. Today's leaders, Harvard Business Review. Today's leaders are faced with the overwhelming challenge of supporting their employees through a two years and counting pandemic. And they need to understand the difference between Pity, which is, I feel sorry for you. Sympathy, which is, I feel for you. Empathy, which is, I feel with you. And compassion, which says, I'm here to help. There is a difference. Pity, sympathy, empathy, and compassion. Jesus illustrates Perfectly, the different levels of love. Compassion, oh, he's here to help. He is the Savior. But I couldn't miss the irony that there was the Harvard Business Review encouraging their leaders to understand what compassion is when in their original founding they had a statement like this because it was founded by Puritan ministers who prioritize Christ above all. Harvard began with this statement, Let every student be plainly instructed and earnestly pressed to consider well the end of his life and studies is to know God and to know Jesus Christ, which is eternal life, and therefore to lay Christ in the bottom as the only foundation of all sound knowledge and learning. Here's my point. You cannot get compassion until you get Christ. Because he alone epitomizes what it means to show up to sacrificially help because greater love has no one than this that he laid on his life for his, for his friends who were once his enemies. That's compassion. And that's the priority of Christ. And if, it's, if, if you get it, then it will, show, it will be a notch in your own life. People will say about you, yeah, I realize that one of their priorities is, is compassion and mercy and grace toward people. Number three, the principles of Christ. I know this is death by alliteration. <laughs> mercy. I can't stop myself. The principles of Christ which reflect the heart of God. So after he heals the man with dropsy, demonstrating his compassion and his help in a practical, miraculous way, then he has a parable that he's going to teach through this parable, God-centered and God-glorified principles. And here are the two principles within. This is a sub-point. Humility and hospitality. Humility and hospitality. So under this notch, there's actually another notch. Man, look at what he says. 
When you're invited somewhere, all of us by nature gravitate towards self-exaltation, self-prominence. Look at me. I want to be with and I want to be around those who seem to be a cut above the hoi polloi of humanity. It's our natural bent. And so as Jesus watches people come into the room, I couldn't, I couldn't help but think of Carly Simon. He walked into the party like he was walking on a yacht. You're so vain. You probably think this song is about you. I think James told me one time, is Warren Beatty, is that who that was about? I think the song really was about him. That's how vain things can become. Jesus is waging war against human vanity and pride. And so in this particular principle, he shows us that God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. So one of the great promises we have in Scripture or great principles as to how God operates in his economy and in his system All of us by nature and and our culture is is flying upside down because we all gravitate in what direction? And we gravitate toward the healthy. We gravitate toward the rich and we gravitate toward the popular. And everything that we aspire to and everything that we dream about and fantasize about is becoming in some way humanly great. And it is straight from secular humanism. Let's be honest. When we're invited, we think about how we show up and where we find ourselves and how we walk in. And Jesus thinks about this too, and he turns it all upside down. There's a warning here about the toxic nature of pride and self-satisfaction and self-exaltation and self-interest and self-promotion and self-this and self-that. The pride of man is an abomination to God, Proverbs says, and it will not go unpunished. But humility has great grace. God promises to dwell with the humble, to revive the humble, to look toward the humble, to never never refuse the broken and humble, to exalt the humble, to give grace to the humble in due time. This is a principle that applies to everyone, everywhere. The Greek scholars have broken down this word, everyone, and you know what it means? It means everybody. (laughs) There are no exemptions. There's no exceptions. All of us are born by nature, gravitating towards ourselves, curved in on ourselves. By God's grace, he shows us the sinfulness of that and demonstrates the opposite of that in his son Christ. So it's not just the... The guest, though, it's also the host. Because not only are we invited, it's sometimes we do the inviting. So the second principle is hospitality. Now, when I think through hospitality, I realize that a lot of us are not even, we're not even inviting our friends and family over. <laughs> you know, it's too exhausting, right? So when you start talking about the cripple and the lame and the poor, Good grief. That's inconvenient. 
At best, it's awkward. How are we going to pull this off? Well, again, we need God and we need grace. Jesus kept saying, what are you doing that's different from the world around you? Everybody can invite those who, you know, they like. Everybody can invite people who give them something in return. So look at verse 12. When you give a luncheon or a dinner, don't invite your friends, your brothers, your relatives, your rich neighbors. Because you're looking, you're looking at them from what you can get out of them. He's basically saying when we see people, we see dollar signs. You realize we do that? I think it's in our subconscious. We're looking at people as to how we can get something out of them rather than looking for something we can sacrifice and give. Jesus is, man, he's nailing sinful human nature right in the middle of the target. repayment in verse 12. So your hospitality ought to be different on the narrow way. It ought to be radically different. So when you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. I got to move on. The principles of the kingdom in the narrow way. Hey, humility and hospitality. The grace of Christ is in you. There'll be two more notches that will mark your life. He or she is a person of humility. He or she is a person of hospitality. And I see in them a love for and a compassion toward those most unfortunate around them. Now I'm going to touch on one, then we're going to close. The next one is the practices of Christ, not just in principle. And here's what I mean by this. Jesus modeled this. Jesus embodied this. He didn't just preach about it. He didn't just teach about it. When we talk about kingdom humility, Jesus himself took the lowest spot when he came to earth. The king of glory, the, the Lord of the universe came down. How low did he go? What was the low spot that he chose? You tell me. A manger? A life of servanthood and sacrifice, washing feet, ministering to the poor, the cripple, ministering to the, 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 the lame and, and, and the blind. His whole ministry gravitated in the opposite direction of the world. Not only did he talk the talk, but he actively practiced what he preached. And aren't we grateful? Because we are the poor. We are the cripple, we are the blind, we are the lame. If not at the moment, physically, certainly apart from him spiritually. Hospitality, Christ has invited us in. He's invited us into his life. He's invited us into his kingdom, in his father's house. He's prepared for us many mansions. He has invited poor, blind, lame sinners like you and me into himself by saying, come those of you who are hungry. Come those of you who are thirsty. So Jesus not only preached this, he practiced it. He embodied it in his life. Which leads me to number, what am I on? Five? Man, there's a lot here. I promise we're almost done. The promises of Christ. Now Luke 14, 14 is my Gina Kingston verse. <laughs> Did you know I would do this, Gina? Okay, I knew you did. 
I've been quoting Luke 14, 14 to Gina Kingston for over 20 years, and here's why. Gina Kingston has given so much of her life through the years to, to ministry. And the leadership of the church can certify that I, I don't think we've ever paid Gina a dime. <laughs> and so, right or wrong, at times I would jokingly say to Miss Gina, Miss Gina, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Luke 14, 14. I'm sure at times Gina got exhausted of that because all of us like to get paid. I mean, I get paid, right? I get paid really well to do what I do. But when we ask ourselves, what's in it for me? Come on, why should I invite the needy and the poor and the lame and the cripple? Like, they don't have the means to... Do you know how many times I've done things for people and I never got paid? Some of you have real stories from people who had the means to pay you and they didn't pay you. Can I just say that God saw that? God knows, God sees, God is just. God has all eternity to work out the injustices that you faced. Here's the promise. Whatever you give up for him, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. What a promise. Now what is the repayment? Oh, it goes beyond what we imagine to be the greatest of currencies. Oh, it's God's grace, it's His love, it's the new heaven, it's the new earth, it's becoming like Jesus, it's seeing Jesus, it's being together for all of eternity in the perfect place with glorified bodies in a glorified place. I could go on and on. Listen, believer, on the narrow road, you continue to live with hope because you know, you know you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous, which leads me to my last point, the passion of Christ. Why would I need to end this sermon with that last mark, the passion of Christ? Because when we hear the promise about the resurrection of the righteous, I'm in a dilemma. I'm not righteous. In and of myself, I have no righteousness to present before God. And if there's going to be a resurrection, that implies there's also death. I'm a sinner who deserves to die. But here's why the last point is the passion of Christ. Because Jesus is the righteous one who was resurrected. When we read in Luke 14, we will be resurrected at the res- we will be rewarded, repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. I say to myself, who is this righteous one who will be resurrected? Because in him alone is the possibility and the res- reality that, that a sinner like me could be resurrected. Where is this person? This person is Christ. And everything in this text... Man, we will be repaid because of the payment he made on our behalf. That's why there's repayment to sinners like you and me. When we don't have anything to present before him, God doesn't owe me anything. But by his grace, which came to us through Christ, we have the knowledge that whatever we give away, Whatever we sacrifice, whatever we lose, 
There's future grace promised to us in Christ, and that empowers us along the narrow way to give our lives away. Now, the irony and the surprise is that as you give your life away along the way, that's blessed in and of itself even before you get to the last payment, right? But that's a whole other message. So let me close by saying, if you are striving to enter the narrow way, your life will be marked by, let's go back, perseverance, compassion, humility, hospitality, love, and then hope, a sacrificial hope in the promise of the resurrection that is to come. Father, thank you for your love which allows us to hear and to preach and to live your word. As I said, we, we conclude with the passion of Christ, his suffering, his dying as an atonement for our forgiveness because we need forgiveness. We need resurrection. We need new life. That is not possible apart from the passion of Christ. So, Father, as he moves toward Jerusalem, remind us of the centrality of the cross. And grant us the spiritual perseverance that your spirit and love can give us along the way. As we sang earlier, change our hearts, oh God, to be more like you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing our hymn of invitation. Just as I am, it begins with surrender. You come as we sing. Just as
enjoyed another normal feeling one service. I don't know about you. It's so good to see all of you here. Hope you'll come again. Um, Catherine, would you close us, please, with prayer? And um, again, as I said earlier, 6 o'clock this evening. Bryson was out this morning, but you will still meet at 6. Uh, children's pizza party at 6 and adult Bible study at 6. And choir at 5. Okay, so I did remember. All right, let's close with the doxology for the month of February. Did you encourage it? Well, okay. we're going to sing our prayer. How's that? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Y'all have a fantastic week.